If you watch the closing credits of the evergreen film Bend It Like Beckham, you'll see outtakes from the shoot with cast and crew singing along and leading them in a bop and a song is the director, Gurinder Chadha. Music and dance are clearly close to her heart, which is why I'm thrilled to be talking to her today. I'm David Jays and this is Why Dance Matters, a new podcast from the Royal Academy of Dance. Conversations exploring how dance has an impact far beyond ballet, connecting to people's passions, their identity and how they make space in the world. Gurinda Chada doesn't make musicals, but her films, which also include Bargy on the Beach, Bride and Prejudice and Blinded by the Light, would only need the slightest nudge to become full-blown, singing, dancing spectaculars. Their wedding scenes, yearning montages and huge, huge heart always hover on the brink of musical uplift. No wonder Bend It Like Beckham did actually become a hit West End show. We're speaking as the UK edges out of lockdown. Gurinda is part of the reopening programme at the British Film Institute's home on London Southbank in a season called Dream Palaces, where leading directors introduce a movie they love. Gurinder's choice is the 1976 classic Car Wash, another film that is so very nearly a musical. For dancers, leaving lockdown means the welcome return of live audiences. But why is that important for a film director? And I bet Gurinder looks good on the dance floor. We'll have to ask her. Gurinder, thank you so much for joining us. I have spent a week re-watching your movies, watching some of them for the first time, and that has slightly left me in bits, to be honest, because they are such an emotional ride. But they also feel as if they only need the slightest nudge to become musicals. <laughs> is that fair, do you think? Yes, I think that is fair. I mean, music is an essential part of my life. I don't think I do anything without having some kind of musical component there in the background of my everyday life. You know, for the moment I wake up, to the moment I go to bed, there's always something going on. And therefore in my films, you know, I often think musically, even if it might not be a musical, you know, music is very much integrated into my scripts and films to the point where when actors join, I always say, well, what does your character listen to? What What is the music that your character plays? You know, and things like that. So I think music is an amazing way of deciphering and coding who we are in terms of uh, individuals and identity by our choices, but also emotionally and empathetically and just in a sort of, as human beings, you know, the variety of what we all listen to and what makes us tick, as it were, I find endlessly interesting. And actually, one of the films of yours that I hadn't seen before is an early TV documentary that you made, I think, in the late 1980s called I'm British But. Yes, that was my um, very is... first film. <laughs> oh, was it? All oh, right, because it's free to watch on the BF 
a player and I would totally recommend it. But what seemed so interesting was that it sows the seeds for so much of the ideas that you went on to explore. British Asian identity and the way that music and dance are integral to that identity. That was always on your radar, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that was a film that I made with a small grant from the British Film Institute at a time when I didn't think I would be a film director. I had trained as a journalist and I was working as a journalist and as a researcher. And I had the opportunity to take part in this BFI New Director Scheme. And they would give you a bit of money if you knew what you wanted to say, you know, if you didn't have to have film experience. And I really wanted to document what was going on in Britain at the time that was so important to me, which was sort of British-born music industry of Bhangra music, you know, and dance. You know, we used to have these daytimers and these concerts. And it was an important, integral part of my identity, being British and Indian. And the music reflected that, and then so did all the culture around it, in terms of, as I said, the daytimers, you know, we would get to Hamsworth Palais, or there was the Empire Ballroom in Leicester Square, and it was <laughs> full of, like, you know, a thousand young Asians all dancing to Bhangra music, the kind of music that their parents initially listened to. But then, for me, what made it exciting was the fact that people like Bali Sagu, Johnny Z, these British Asians came along and started remixing what the older generation were doing, which was pure Bhangra and the pure Bhangra dances, and they started remixing stuff, particularly Bali Sagu. You know, he started mixing reggae tracks because he was really into reggae, and so was I, and started creating this sort of ragga kind of Bhangra sound. And that absolutely blew my mind, which is why I used it for my very first feature, Baji on the Beach. So one of the yeah. songs is uh, by Bally, and then that started my lifelong relationship with Bally now, and, he, and he's a part of most of my films. Tell us a bit more about the daytimers, because as the clue is in the name, these huge events are happening, as you say, at daytime. And... Kids are bunking off school <laughs> to, to go and to dance and to come back home without their parents clocking what has happened. In my movie Blinded by the Light, I actually filmed a daytimer because, you know, it's set in the 80s. Yes. So there is a scene in that movie. And basically what happened was the music was so popular and the culture around it was so popular, but girls were not allowed out at night, you know, particularly not to go clubbing. And so what used to happen was people would start putting on these daytimers at like midday, you know, and so girls would go off to school and then at lunchtime go off to these clubs, take the change of clothes with them, you know, and then everyone would be dancing away as if they were in a club. And then at four o'clock, you know, (laughs) then you'd go home and parents wouldn't be none the wiser. Bands were blowing up all over the country. New dances were being devised that took old traditional Bhangra moves and adapting them into a modern sort of way of dancing, like taking hand gestures but making them feel a bit more modern, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, was dance 
and, and dance classes, were they a part of your life? I mean, my hunch is that you're a bit of a demon on the dance floor, but again, I might be wrong. Well, when I was young, my mum took me to India to stay with her and my grandparents for quite a few months, actually, and one of them was poorly. So I ended up being enrolled into a school in India when I was about nine, I think. And while I was there... My mum said, why don't you learn Indian, traditional Indian dance? So I did. So I learned traditional Indian dance. But when I came home, I was so embarrassed about it. I never, <laughs> ever danced, ever, you know, that traditional style. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> it is, but you see, that was the problem then. You didn't, you know, everything, everyone wanted you to be white and English. And at school, you know, people said, oh, you've got an identity crisis, you know, if you don't need your Indian earrings. So everything Indian was sort of looked down upon. And I thought, God, the idea of me prancing around doing this Indian dance with bells around my ankles, no thank you. Right. So I refused to do it. And it's only later now when I've got a daughter who loves it and I put her in for Kathak dancing. And she was so good at it. And, and it reminded me of some of my moves. But... What I used to do very much as a kid with my friends was sort of come up with dance moves. Like we used to play girl bands, you know, like the Supremes, you know? Right. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut songs and we used to put our hands out like the Supremes did. And I remember very clearly sort of doing disco y and soul dance imitations, you know, of bands. But I, really, I was never I was never a brilliant dancer. I did like to dance and it was music first and the dancing came with the music, I think. Right. For me. Yeah. And the other thing that's a highlight of several of your films is a full throttle wedding scene. And I, I mean, honestly, you could have a side hustle as a wedding planner, I think, because you kind of think about them in such beautiful detail. And in those scenes, everyone is dancing and you're moving around and you're grabbing really quite intimate interactions right in the middle of the throng. How challenging are those huge group scenes to film? Well, in Bend It Like Beckham, of course, the wedding scene at the end, a lot of people there were my family and friends and friends of friends. And it was like an Indian wedding and everyone was so happy to be there. And also the band B21 were fantastic. So it did feel like a wedding and at our weddings, everyone gets up and dances. So I didn't have any trouble getting people to dance. What was hard was you had to make sure that you followed the narrative. You were on top of the story you were telling and not getting too relayed. But one of the famous moments is our Indian conga dance, which is real good, which is oh, yes. a sort of anthem for us. And it's sort of about, come on, let's go make a train, you know, as we dance. Come and join the train of happiness and love. And, you know, it's called real good. And in that sequence, I couldn't resist not being part of it. So you'll, <laughs> you'll see me all over the movie in that sequence, you know, being part of the conga. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, I know Hitchcock does a little cameo, but you never see him in a conga line. So that is quite impressive. <laughs> but what, but in, when it came to Bride and Prejudice, though, I mean, that was a proper full on uh, Hindi British musical style, yeah. you know, Bollywood, as people say. But what I did there was I wanted different styles 
of dance. So we have the traditional sort of Punjabi Bhangra style in the first song. And then later on, we had a Gujarati Garba stick dance style. Then we had uh, Ashanti and sort of hippies in Goa dancing away style, you know, like we varied it up. Yeah. And then we had some musical theatre type singing and dancing as well. You know, for me, it is about seeing how the movement blends with the music to culturally tell the story in the movie, as it were, as opposed to purist sort of dance. Although I have to yes. say, I'm I'm friends with Akram Khan, and I'm always blown away by what he does and what he does with his body. Absolutely, yeah. So are you very aware when you're casting of someone's physical presence? Because I mean, virtually all your films, people, certainly the leads, are asked to do a lot of different kinds of movement. They're young and restless and they're always on the move. Oh, yeah. Physicality is an important part of acting and filmmaking, for sure. Physicality is and how someone moves. I mean, ask any actor how they choose to make their character walk, you know, talk, hold themselves. What is their gait in relation to working with the director? It's a fantastic voyage of discovery you know when you first cast an actor and you talk about these things all this is uh, very very important and so most actors I think they have some kind of training physical training in movement of some kind a lot of people of course do yoga now and stretches so they're quite limber but I yeah. think it's endlessly fascinating to me to see how physicality and movement ends up defining characters and actors i should say in movies that aren't quite a dance necessarily but to have a presence on screen yeah and i was also wondering about your physicality as a director I and mean, especially early in your career did you think about how to project leadership when you were on a film set what do you sort of do to your body to be that authority figure um well that's interesting I guess I never really thought about that at the beginning because I was you know I didn't didn't really know other directors and hadn't really been on sets with other directors so what you do is you just get on with your job which is to answer a million questions all the time and because you know your story inside out you know you you you're prepped you have answers and so you win people's trust as things have you know progressed i find that well in the early days also that i think that some people did have an issue with me being a woman and also being asian so in the very very early days i think there was a couple of times when there were some issues but largely after that i think you you have to step up and take control What's interesting, though, in India, what I do quite a lot, a, a bit in England, I've done it in England, but in India, they have a system there where the director often has a microphone and a speaker, because especially when you have lots of extras. And so often the director talks, you know, through the mic. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. And what I often do is when after lunch, for example, when everyone's a bit sluggish, I always play music 
and uh, or when there's a problem or we're waiting for something and everyone's sort of sitting around. I often play music and get people to get to dance, get in the mood and get lively. And that always goes down well in India because, of course, in India people love to sing and, <laughs> and dance, yeah. Yeah. I've always loved the closing credits of Bend It Like Beckham as well because there's a lot of that and there are little scenes with you and the cast and crew getting everyone to sing along and dance along and you're often in the middle of those little snippets yes. kind of bopping enthusiastically. Yes, yes. On set, you know, I do like to have a lot of camaraderie. People are spending time there together in a very intense way. So the last thing you want is for it to be stressful. My policy is to feed everyone well, praise everyone for the good work that they're doing and and lead a happy ship as much as I can. There are other directors I know who like the tension and like to make people feel a bit on edge because dramatically maybe, you know, it gives them what they want. But for me, music sort of comes into that and dance. And of course, our rap parties are legendary. (laughs) Bend It Like Beckham also became a West End show, so it did become a fully-fledged musical. How was that experience? Was it a very different sort of a world to the film world, or are theatre animals the same as film animals? As it you were? know what? It, it actually was not that different, because it was still storytelling, and for me it was fusion. My choreographer, Alita Collins, we spent a lot of time together talking about fusion, you know, and how to create movement that narratively worked for each particular moment. And it was important for me to get some traditional Indian moves in. But at the same time, because we had girls in soccer gear, we needed to have that sort of sense of power, girl power, as it were, you know, and have strong athletic moves as well. Because, see, when I made Bend It Like Beckham, you know, it was very rare to see women looking really powerful and strident in an athletic way on screen. So with the musical, certainly when we were casting the musical, you know, we needed women who were triple threats. You know, they could <laughs> dance, they could sing and they could act. They yeah. needed to carry the soccer scenes as movement as well as song. And brilliant thing about Alita Collins is that movement is never just movement as you say it's always storytelling it's always about character it doesn't just happen in a vacuum yes absolutely and we have a few moments which were sort of big show-stoppy moments as it were but you know but generally it was amazing how dance can be emotional on the stage, you know. I mean, it is on camera yeah. as well, I think. But on the stage, you know, when people are dancing their hearts out, it's emotional. Yeah, it's just thrilling because there is obviously no trickery. You've just got that shared physical presence, haven't you? Yes, yes. So, Corinda, you're... Part of the Dream Palaces season, which is reopening BFI Southbank, where leading directors 
introduce a favourite movie and your choice is Car Wash, which is a fantastic film. And again, just a sidestep from being an actual musical. Why does it speak to you so strongly? I watched it a couple of years ago and I realised how much of an influence it had had on me because, you know, I didn't know at the time when I saw it for the first time I was ever going to be a film director. But when I look at it now, I mean, you know, it's about identity, it's about race, it's about a myriad of characters all coming together in this one space who are all discussing different versions of those themes for themselves. And that is exactly what Bargy on the Beach was, you know, my first film. You know, I obviously felt quite influenced by the fact that you have all these different voices. And so instead of having just one character, you've got all these different black experiences, you know, that are feeding into this incredible, entertaining, yet political piece of work. Also, you know, we'd had the Black Lives Matter movement as well. And I just felt that this here was a movie that was really important to me, actually, when I was growing up. And I felt that if I'm going to put a movie out there and that other people are going to come because of me, then let it be this. And also, I defy anyone, I defy anyone to not move to the title song. Yeah. And because the radio is playing in the car wash all day, you've just got this endless stream of brilliant funk and disco from beginning to end. It is yes. so joyous, isn't it? And the way it weaves into people's lives really deftly. Oh, yeah. Such an underrated movie. Yeah. And that's Michael Schultz, isn't that's it? Right. He, he, he's not someone who's sort of often in the conversation. It's sad that he's not had his due. Yes. And I do love the term dream palace. And I know it's a 1930s term for a cinema, but it's also perfect for anywhere where art is created and shared. Live audiences, obviously they're important for dancers and for stage performers, but why do they matter to a film director? Well, I just think it's an important cultural experience. I think going out to the theatre, sitting in a room with lots of people where you're all laughing at the same thing or crying even at the same thing. I mean, it's an incredible, humane experience, I think. Also, if people are watching a film that's not very good, you know, and everyone's laughing and moaning, you know, like that collective experience, I find to be incredibly moving at times, but also just entertaining. You know, I, I like to hear what other people think and say, and and I like to judge what the crowd's feeling, particularly as a filmmaker, because then you know, you know, where you're going with your work and what, what's working, what isn't working. But that idea of going to the cinema and seeing work on huge screens like that, it's a platform. And as much as I love my... 75-inch TV, watching movies and TV and all the rest of it, that's a lonely experience. You know, that's you in your house, maybe with, in my case, my husband who's snoring on the sofa, (laughs) falling asleep. You know, kids are busy now doing their own things, you know, on their iPads and laptops and PS4s, whatever. 
you know, it's a lonely experience, but I think that idea of going to the theatre and just not being disturbed or distracted and being amongst other people who have come there to enjoy or be educated or be informed or just enjoy the art, it's a cultural experience, particularly if the film was a foreign language film or from a different country, and then the cinema would be packed with people from that country sitting there with them, enjoying their culture you know their film and then you're part of that Corinda I am going to let you go but before I do that I have to ask the question in the podcast title why does dance matter to you dance matters to me because it is about joy it's joyful we dance in my culture particularly when we're feeling joyous you know at weddings at parties after people have had a few drinks, you know, get up and dance in the front room. For me, it's a way that we celebrate our lives and celebrate ourselves in convivial social situations. That's why dance matters. But also, on another level, dance is an incredible expression of our experience as human beings and what people can achieve with dance movement you know is beguiling and you know we you know contemporary dance we don't often get treated to that you know in a mainstream way you know it's seen as sort of more art house but i think if you look at every single culture in the world every culture has its own dance you know its own folk dances or its own national dances and so it's a uniquely human thing to do to dance Thank you so much, Gurinda. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Art that touches the heart, it's a big thing. And to feel that in the presence of other people is amazing. Gurinda has made me long to settle once again in a darkened theatre or cinema, eyes wide open, ready for whatever is coming. I'd love to hear what dance has made you laugh and cry. Let me know at Mr David J's on Twitter. The RAD is at RAD headquarters. Our show notes include links to the BFI's Dream Palaces season and to the RAD's work. And please do subscribe and like the podcast. It helps us find other people who might enjoy Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Gurinda Chada. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Hayley Izzard, Celia Moran and Melanie Murphy. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our totally on it wedding planner is our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.